podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS Missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. You may be seated. Back in 2003, Bishop Tom Wright, who at the time was the Bishop of York, one of the largest dioceses in the Anglican Church, and an accomplished scholar, published an 800-page volume titled The Resurrection of the Son of God. And it is kind of the definitive work on everything you ever wanted to know or didn't even realize that you wanted to know about the resurrection of Jesus and about Easter. It, it kind of covers everything from what the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews thought about life after death, the first written accounts of Jesus's resurrection, one of which you heard this morning from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the gospel accounts, how they differ and how they all agree with each other. And finally, what does Jesus's resurrection mean to us 2,000 years later in places like Montreal? It leaves no stone unturned, and gives careful consideration to the event that, in the opinion of Dr. and Pastor Wright, has shaped human history for the last two millennia. 800 pages to unpack what Mark lays out in his gospel in eight verses. All there is in Mark. So why so long? Why would somebody take all of that time and energy and effort to write an 800-page volume about Easter? Well, one of my favorite Easter hymns says it best, one of the hymns that we will probably, again, not get to sing as we are still muddling our way through this pandemic. The beginning of each of the three stanzas of that hymn sums it all up. If Christ had not been raised from death, Our faith would be in vain, our preaching but a waste of breath, our sin and guilt remain. If Christ still lay within the tomb, then death would be the end, and we should face our final doom with neither guide nor friend. If Christ had not been truly raised, his church would live a lie. His name should never more be praised. His words deserve to die. That's why Dr. Wright wrote, the resurrection of the Son of God. Because if the evidence for the resurrection doesn't add up, then the church really should just close its doors and call it a day. And all of us can go on with Easter brunch or Easter eggs or bunnies or whatever it is you feel like doing this afternoon. One of Bishop's Wright's favorite lines, and he uses this in all sorts of lectures and presentations that he does, YouTube videos that you can find out on the internet goes like this. People talk about the first Easter like it was the sort of thing people expected was going to happen. Like the women show up at the tomb and go, oh, look, the stone's been rolled away and the body is gone. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And there was much rejoicing. Now we will rise too. Alleluia. But that is not what people 2,000 years ago thought or expected could happen. 
any more than we would expect to go to the Mount Royal Cemetery this afternoon and find a bunch of graves dug up with caskets open and bodies gone. The Greek people, from which the Romans got their great philosophy, believe that once we die, our souls are liberated from our bodies and they go to Hades, the abode of the dead. For a long time, people thought that Hades was a particularly bad place. Once you were dead, your soul basically ended up in this kind of muddy, gray, dim existence. But then about 300 years before Jesus, Hades got a renovation. It's like that HGTV shows, you know, where the homes get all fixed up. And suddenly, Hades was not a bad place to be because you were finally free of your body. And our bodies are such terrible prisons for our souls. The Romans kind of built on this and said, when you die, if you've been a good Roman citizen, if you fought in the military and worked to aggrandize the Roman Empire, then you got to go to the Champs-Élysées, the Elysian Fields, where you got to roam in pleasure and drink and eat and hang out with all of your war bodies from now until the end of time. And for the Jews... They believe that we die, our souls somehow enter into some existence where they're kept with God, but the body lays in the tomb until the great last day, which is why when Jesus goes to meet with Mary and Lazarus after the death of their brother, and he says, your brother will rise again, they immediately say, well, of course we know that he will on the last day. But what the Greeks the Romans and the Jews did not expect was a dead body to come back to life here and now in this world. So if you're going to make up a story about life after death and about somebody conquering this great enemy death, the story that we have in the Gospels is not what you write. Because nobody, Greek, Roman, or Jew, expected this sort of thing to happen. In fact, it was so new that as the story of this carpenter from Nazareth that was executed for being a rebel under the Roman authorities, whose tomb was broken open and his body was gone, started to circulate around the Mediterranean, everybody said, that's a great plot line. And as Tom Wright points out in his book, all sorts of people started to write these romance novels about people who supposedly were dead and then buried and then whose tombs were broken open and the body was gone and the people had come back to life. It was a whole genre that exploded all around the Mediterranean world. If you want just one example this morning, there was a story centered around a young woman named Kalerho and her fiance kicks her because he thinks she's been unfaithful, and it looks like she's dead. So apparently, conjugal violence, still a thing 2,000 years ago. And the story goes like this after she is buried. Hurrying in the dark, the tomb robbers had been careless in shutting the tomb. Carries, who was her fiancé, waited for Don to visit the tomb, ostensibly to bring wreaths and libations, but really he was going to kill himself, Romeo and Juliet, before their time. But when he arrived, he discovered that the stones had been moved and that the entrance was wide open. 
Astonished at the sight and seized by a fearful bewilderment at what had happened, rumors swiftly brought the shocking news to another man, and everyone went to the tomb, but nobody ventured to go inside until a third man shows up and says, go ahead and look. Sound familiar to you? This is the sort of thing that was happening all over the Mediterranean world. Why? Because this brand new thing was being talked about. This Jewish prophet in Israel who had been executed, buried, but whose tomb three days later was opened and whose body was now gone. But how do you explain it? How do you explain something that makes absolutely no sense, that we have no frame of reference for in our lives? Even 2,000 years ago, people were trying to come up with explanations like, well, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. Maybe, like unto the princess bride, he was only mostly dead. That would suggest that the Roman soldiers weren't doing their job as well as they normally did it. Because let's face it, the Romans weren't particularly good at a lot of things like democracy, but they were very, very, very good at killing. And when they set out to execute someone by crucifixion or otherwise, they made sure that they weren't mostly dead. They were dead dead. Which is why the two thieves next to Jesus had their legs broken. I don't know if any of you have pondered that. Why would you break their legs? Well, the only way you survive crucifixion is by pushing against the nail in your ankles to try and get a breath of air. Break your legs, you can't breathe, and you asphyxiate. But Jesus was already dead. But they weren't content with making sure that he was, or just taking people's word for it. They actually speared him through his side. That's how certain they wanted to be that the, ex, the people they were executing were actually dead, dead. So if Jesus was dead, dead, then what were all the people seeing? And it was more than just one. We have Mary Magdalene, of course, who sees Jesus mistaking him for the Gardner, we have two men who are walking between Jerusalem and Emmaus who discover that they've been walking with Jesus this whole time. We have James who sees Jesus. We have Peter who sees Jesus. We have, as Paul says, more than 500 people. And he says, you don't have to take my word for it. Most of them are still alive. Go and ask them whether they've seen Jesus of Nazareth. And then, of course, Paul gives the coup de grace and says, even I have seen the resurrected Christ. What were they all seeing? Mass hallucination? Nobody in history has ever had that degree of mass hallucination with different people in different times in different places. It's a degree of coordination that is hard to fathom. So what we're left with, of course, is that the body was stolen. The tomb is empty, and so somebody came in in the middle of the night and took Jesus away. By the way, that's what Matthew records in his gospel. That while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers who had been told to guard the tomb and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Only one problem with this story. 
the body is still gone. You still have to account for the fact that somehow the body of Jesus went missing and all it would have taken was producing that body to make the whole thing fall apart. The reality is that to this day, nobody historically has denied that the tomb was empty and the body was gone. So, what does this mean? So what? The tomb's empty, the body is gone, Jesus has apparently been raised from the dead according to his disciples. What it means is that everything that Jesus said during his earthly ministry about his cross is true. Because every time he talked about the crucifixion, every time he talked about this is the kind of death I'm going to die, he tied it to the fact that three days later he was going to rise again. If you get the one, you got to look for the other. And if you can find the other, then we know that what he said about the former is true. And what did Jesus say about his cross? He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Somehow that cross and that empty tomb are tied to our eternal lives. And then, at the last, right before the Last Supper, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What happens at that cross is the defeat of our enemies. What happens at that cross is God going to war for you and for me against the one who wants only to see our demise. What happens on that cross is that God says, I am not going to leave you alone to fight this battle against the forces that want to punish you and kill you and keep you out of a relationship with God and with each other. I will, through my death, destroy Satan and the power of death once and for all, and my resurrection will demonstrate that the victory is yours. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. That all appearances to the contrary, the forces of evil are on the run and have been defeated, and that we are now part of a kingdom that will stand forever, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every single time you and I stand up and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we put the lie to every other person or force or power that would claim to be Lord in this world, whether it's money whether it's power, whether it's governments, whether it's celebrity, whether it's likes on YouTube or social media channels or prestige or anything we can name that would think that it is the true Lord of this world, Jesus says, I have defeated them and only I am the Christ. So we can say with St. Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And if Christ had not been raised, Paul writes, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Then Christ, we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
the first thing that seminarians have to study when we're preparing to be called to be pastors is Greek. Very exciting. It's a great way to get going. Let's learn a foreign language. And in fact, let's learn one that nobody actually speaks anymore because the Greek we learn is the Greek of the New Testament, not the Greek that's actually spoken in Park Extension. So it's only moderately helpful. But while I was studying summer Greek, I got called out of class by a former colleague from my engineering firm. And when I went to answer the phone and started talking to him, uh, he couldn't keep going. He had to pass the phone to his wife. And I was talking with Liz and said, Liz, what's going on? Why can't Mark talk to me? So Mike Van Ayer just died this morning. Now, you don't know who Mike Van Ayer is, but he was my engineering master's degree supervisor. He was 39 years old, and he was out jogging, as he did almost every day with his two grammar school kids. Suddenly had an aneurysm, collapsed, and by the time the ambulance got there, he was gone. Now, I know because I worked very closely with Mike that he was not a Christian. He'd been raised Catholic, as many people in Canada and Europe and Quebec were, but had kind of left the faith and didn't want to have anything to do with this God business. So for the funeral, they had to find some poor pastor in Blacksburg, Virginia, who would be willing to say a few words. And they found this guy, and he got up and said, I know that not a lot of you believe in God, but I don't want you to leave here without hope. And that hope is that Mike is in a better place. So this is where we're at, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, in our world, in our culture. That we can get up there and say, I know there doesn't seem to be any evidence for God. There doesn't seem to be any evidence in anything eternal or anything of life-ending consequence in this world, but I do want you to have the hope that somehow there is something after death. Well, if you can't give me any evidence for a Lord who would defeat death, what evidence do you have that there can be a victory over death, especially for someone like Mike? Where's your proof? Where's the evidence? You say you want me to have hope, where is the evidence that I can have hope in this world? Because you have all probably looked at the news this morning. The news is never great. We all desperately long for some kind of a website that's going to give us good news every morning. But instead, all we find out is that there have been a train crash in Taiwan with dozens dead. More attacks on churches, synagogues, temples, and other places in the world. More government repression. Less free speech. More spouses, girlfriends who have been hurt, injured, or even killed by the people that say that they love them. More children without parents. Where is the good news and where is the hope? How do we go out into the world and live lives filled with hope if we don't have any evidence for it? And that's precisely why I spent all of that time this morning talking to you about what Dr. Wright researched. Because our hope, the reason why we call ourselves a good news place here at Ascension Lutheran Church, is because we live in a world that needs to have something that they can pin their hopes on. A North Star a solid ground that we can go to when everything else is being attacked by winds or floods. And that solid ground is the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth.
Because this event that we celebrate this morning at Easter, that the tomb was empty and the body was gone and that Jesus has now been resurrected such that he can appear to his friends and demonstrate that death has been defeated is our hope. It's what enables us to lead a different kind of life outside of these walls than the people that we normally engage with in our society. We are entering into a dangerous time in the West. I'm not speaking of all over the world because the great promise of God is that his church never fails and the gates of hell never prevail against it. And I know as a missionary that works in the South, there are all sorts of places where Christ and his kingdom are growing. But here in the West, we're losing that hope. We're losing that confidence. And you can see it in the way we're starting to treat one another. Where everything is about me, myself, and I. And when Jesus stands up and says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, increasingly people are like, why should I? You and I know why. Because we have a Lord who loved us even to the point of death, who gave everything up for you, that you might know that there is a God who cares and who has loved you and defeated death and the powers of Satan. You are in his hands. No matter what might happen in 2021, no matter what happens with this pandemic, no matter what happens with the economy, no matter what happens at your job or in your school, no matter what happens with your friends or your family, Christ is yours. And what is the evidence for that? 2,000 years ago, his tomb was open, his body was gone. And he appeared before his disciples and said, peace be with you. Amen. Now may the grace, mercy, and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, guard and keep you in the one true faith unto life everlasting. Amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless your week.